Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. We've been looking at every book of the Bible, all 66. We've got to the final one now, the book of Revelation. Mike, take us through it. This is obviously a remarkable book, but I think I need your help. <laughs> Who doesn't need help with this one? I mean, this is uh, its an amazing book. It is full of truth, and yet it's also full of minefields and pitfalls that people have gone into over the years. And so, you know, I tread into this one with trepidation, probably what is best is if rather than poke into every little hole and corner, we try and settle today for what the main thrust of this letter is in light of the context in which John received it. I was going to say, well, let's just have a few basics, a few facts. So who wrote it? And you mentioned already a letter. Yeah. So it was written by John, the same John we've seen previously, who wrote the gospel and his three letters. And here is another letter and yet a particular kind of letter, also a letter that will contain letters. And this is a letter written from the revelation that John gets from Jesus when he is now a really old man towards the end of his life. We date it round about 95 AD. And the emperor at this time was a guy called Domitian. And one of the things that Domitian did was he modestly decided that he was God and that he should be acknowledged as such and required this of all the citizens of the Roman Empire that at least once a year they had to acknowledge that he is Caesar, was Lord and God. And he unlocked a fierce persecution against the Christians because obviously for them there was only one Lord and that was Jesus and they refused to do this. So the first thing we need to remember as we come to this book is that it's received by John in his old age at a time when Christians were being horrendously persecuted. And not only John, but the whole church is really asking the question, Lord, what on earth is going on here? Why are we undergoing all this? And what is happening? Why aren't you coming back? Are you coming back soon? So they are full of questions. And this book is the answer to those questions of what is going on and why, as John is given a sort of heavenly perspective of events lifted up from where he is, where is he? Well, he tells us he was on the island of Patmos, which was a little island off the coast from Ephesus, where he'd been based about 35 miles off the coast. And it was a Roman penal colony. So it was where they sent exiles and prisoners. And it was a quarry. So it may well be that John was working here as an old man, laboring away, forced labor in the quarries of this penal colony in isolation from all his Christian friends, perhaps thinking things through when suddenly he hears a voice. Uh, the book starts that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day and he heard a loud voice. And as he turns around, he sees the one 
whom he last saw many, many years before, 60 years before. And I'm sure as he heard that voice, he thought, oh no. And he suddenly realized who it was and turns and he gets to see a vision of Jesus and his angels who call him up into heaven to see what's going on here on earth from a heavenly perspective. So this isn't Jesus' return to earth. This is some glimpse of Jesus that he's getting. Absolutely. And it's a glimpse that he is getting. As he, In fact, the letter begins by him putting letters within the letter. Perhaps we should say that, you know, this is a letter. He's told to write a letter. It is to the seven churches. And there are letters within it as each of these churches receives a word from the Lord Jesus, five of the seven are rebuked, really, for stuff that they have let into their church life in the context of this fierce persecution. But then in chapter four, John is invited to come up to heaven. He hears a voice saying, come up here and I will show you what is going to take place. Now, that word show is important, this whole book is called Revelation because that's what we are told it is at the beginning of the book. It's a revelation of what is about to take place. The Greek word for revelation is apocalypsis. Uh, it means an unveiling. It was actually the word that was used in the theater when they lifted the curtain. <laughs> they did the unveiling, the apocalypsis. And it's as if Jesus is saying, I want you to come up to heaven in the spirit with me and I'm going to lift the curtain on life's events so you can see not just what you're seeing at the moment, which is persecution and demission and all these things happening. I'm going to lift the curtain for you to reveal what is happening from heaven's perspective. Now, that's really important. The thing about a revelation is, believe it or not, it reveals. This is meant to reveal something. And very often we've come at it in the 20th and 21st century Christian church as though everything in this letter were hidden and mysterious. No, it was designed to reveal, and yet it reveals in a genre, kind of literature that is alien to us in the West today. And so we often misunderstand it. It's in a genre called apocalyptic, which used pictures, symbols, numbers to reveal its message. And these pictures and symbols and numbers, it's important for us to understand, were well understood in their day. They were not mystical and hidden. No secret code or anything. Absolutely not. And that's how Revelation has often been interpreted in the last hundred years or so, a, a secret code waiting for me to come along and crack it and identify, you know, which Russian president this means and which country that means and so on. They would have understood clearly and easily what this symbolism was all about. It was well known in Judaism. It's rooted in the Old Testament and in Jewish thinking. So, you know, we're not coming here looking for secret mysteries in our age, this is a message to the persecuted church of John's time to encourage them and to use language that they would have easily understood and interpreted 
to see that despite everything that is going on and everything that frankly seems to be going wrong, Jesus is still on the throne, God has a plan, and in the end, we win. So what does this revelation reveal to those seven churches? Well, why don't I sort of give a quick bird's eye overview of what this letter is about? In this letter, everything comes in sevens. Why seven? Because seven was God's perfect number in his gospel. John had said he knew many miraculous signs that Jesus had done, but chose only seven. Seven was sufficient. And so not surprisingly, this book is in seven main sections. So put your seatbelt on, sit back, enjoy the flight. And here we go very quickly in Section 1, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. This is all about Jesus, who is Lord of all. A prologue where it's made clear what this letter is and who it is, Jesus, that lies behind it. In section 2, verses chapter 1, verse 9 to chapter 3, 22, it focuses on Jesus, the Son of Man, who stands among his churches, represented by seven lampstands and, and seven stars and they're both challenged and encouraged for how they are responding in this time of persecution now all of that is about what's happening here on earth in chapter four there's a turning point as we start the third section which is chapter four verse one to chapter 11 verse 18 this is all about jesus the lamb on the throne and john is invited up to heaven where he sees the very throne of God and he sees Jesus there seated with the Father on the throne. The Lamb of God who was slain is now securely seated on the throne and he is not going to get up from that place and we can rest secure in that. And now John is shown that in light of the fact that Jesus is on the throne, what is happening down there on earth is not just sort of random crazy events of history, a man gone mad. Here is God at work. Jesus is still on the throne and God's judgments are getting worked out on the earth. So we get seven seals as Jesus unlocks the scroll of human history and shows John what's happening. We get seven trumpets as Jesus warns the world through those events and shows that, you know, judgment is already getting outworked in the world. In section four, we see Jesus, the cosmic warrior. It's chapter 11, verse 19 to chapter 15, verse four. We get a vision of a woman, a child and a, a dragon. The woman, the people of God, the child, Jesus, the dragon who tries to overcome him. But who can't? And in this section, we get seven visions of battle. But the overriding message through this is battle may be going on here on earth, but God's people are secure. They are kept, every single one of them, whether they live or whether they are martyred. And the kingdom of God is still advancing. In section five, we get Jesus, the just judge, chapter 15, verse five to chapter 19, verse 10, where now we get seven bowls of wrath, the wrath of God. Here is now history, that same history from God's perspective. And we see conflict and the message that things will get worse before they get better. 
symbolized by the beasts and Babylon who oppose the people of God. But it culminates in Babylon, all those who oppose God falling at last. The sixth section sees Jesus, the conquering king, chapter 19, verse 11 to 22, verse 5. And there we see Christ's return, the final judgment of all who have opposed God and the putting of Satan into that lake of fire and God's new creation being brought about where we can live with him forever. And in the final section, chapter 22, verse 6 to the end of the letter, we see Jesus, the coming one, an epilogue where we're told to be encouraged and to stand firm. So seven sweeps through history and the message, the overriding message is crazy things are happening here on earth. They are not random. Jesus is still on the throne. He holds the scroll of human history. And these things that are happening are the outworking of God's judgment on earth, not just in the end times, but throughout the whole of human history. There will be a time when Satan seeks to oppose Jesus in a very overt way, but he will be defeated. Christ will return and evil will be destroyed. So in light of that, hold on because I am coming soon. And there's your whistle-stop tour of Revelation. Well, that was quite a flight. I'm going to take you back to the terminal building. I think you better. And back at the terminal building, we were just considering those seven churches Yeah. and the messages to those seven churches. Open that out for us if you would. Yeah, the seven churches are seven churches that are all in all around the area of Ephesus and, uh, you know, literal churches. These are not symbolic. Sometimes these have been seen as symbols of supposed seven ages of the church. They're not. These are addressed to real churches in a real historic context. Ephesus is commended for persevering. Remember, against this terrible background of persecution that's going on. But Ephesus is rebuked for losing its first love, the love it had at first. Smyrna is commended for holding on and actually isn't rebuked. Pergamon is commended for staying faithful to Jesus, but is rebuked for tolerating false teaching, a theme we've come across in previous episodes. Thyatira, commended for its growing love and service, but rebuked for its tolerance of, of idolatry and, and false teaching about sexuality. There's Sardis, a church commended for those few that are still holding on, but rebuked for sort of relying on their past reputation. There might be a word for some of our churches today. Philadelphia. Commend it for its obedience and not denying Jesus. But equally, this is one of those that also isn't rebuked. But it is reminded that there's an open door before them. I've set an open door before you, despite the opposition, don't give in. And then finally, Laodicea, the only church not commended for anything but rather being rebuked for being lukewarm and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And actually, it's urged to let Jesus back in through the door. Let me in, Jesus is saying. We often use that verse as a, an evangelistic verse. Here I stand at the door 
a knock, but actually it's not an evangelistic verse. It's Jesus calling out to his church, let me in. How tragic that is. So those letters in themselves are worth looking at to see what is there there that would challenge us today, you know, about our lukewarmness and how we've compromised with culture around us and what do we need to do and stand up for again to be the church that Jesus wants to and to let him in again into our midst. You said that we've got to be careful with how we interpret different parts of Revelation, but you did say that the symbolism and, and that numbers, for example, have significance. Just explain that. Yeah, this is so important when we come to Revelation. And again, anyone who had any sort of Jewish background would understand this. It would really be like teaching your granny to suck eggs, as the, the old saying goes. So numbers were used in sort of very well-defined ways in Judaism. The number one often symbolized uniqueness. Why? Because here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Two often symbolized unity. So Jesus sent his disciples out in twos. The animals went into the ark at two by two. Three denoted God's power or God's powerful intervention. So things often happened on the third day. Think of Jonah spewed out from the great fish on the third day. Think of Jesus raised from the dead on the third day, the day when God acts. Four symbolized the whole of creation. Thinking of the four corners of the earth, the four winds that were thought of across the earth. Five was half complete and 10 complete. Why? Because they had a decimal system. Six was the number of humankind. Why? Because in Genesis, God creates mankind on the sixth day. And seven is God's number, the number of perfection and, and God's plan. And so what we find in Revelation is a lot of those numbers are, are used with that symbolism behind them. So you've already seen there are seven sections to the letter, but there are also seven churches, seven letters, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven plagues. God has got this in his hand. And there are two other numbers that spring to mind associated with Revelation, 144,000 and 666. Yeah, the ones that cause lots of uh, disagreement between Christians. Let me do the 666 one first. Six, the number of a man. Now, in Hebrew, there is no what we call comparative and superlative. So in English, we would say good, better, best. In Hebrew, they would have to say good, 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 good. So when in Isaiah 6, Isaiah hears the angel singing, holy, 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 what he's really hearing is God is the holiest of all. So that works with numbers too. Six is the number of humanity, a man's number. This opponent of God is going to be a man. Actually, he's not just going to be six. He's going to be six, six the most that man can give. No, he's going to be six, six, six. The very biggest that man could be and stretched to, but here's the good news. This enemy, this opponent of God, 
His number might be six, six, six. But I'll tell you what, he'll never be seven. He'll never reach seven. There's only one seven, and that's God. So while in the end time, this figure will arrive whose symbolic number will be a six, a six, a six, he's still only human. He's the worst that humanity can be. He'll try all he can with his human powers, and he'll use deceit, and he'll use false religion and political power, but he'll never get beyond six because there's only one seven. And that's the Lord, and he's reigning in heaven. So forget anything you've heard about being barcoded or the number 666 being tattooed on your arm. It's complete nonsense. Let's go to the other big one, 144,000. The first thing is, it is 144,000, not the 144,000. This number occurs twice in the book, and it's a combination of numbers. And this, again, is how Jewish numerology used to work. How can you break up 144,000? Well, it's a combination of 12s and 10s. 12, what did 12 symbolize? Well, we know going right back to the Old Testament, the people of God, the tribes, all of God's people. So 12 times 12 is most definitely all of God's people. Then a thousand, ten times ten times ten. Remember the decimal system, ten is complete. Ten times ten, very complete. Ten times ten times ten, absolutely complete. Times all the people of God. What John is seeing here is that all of the people of God are kept safe during these onslaughts of the enemy. Not just at the end, but throughout human history. Not one of them is missing. That's the message. Don't worry about those who've been martyred. Don't worry about those who've died and gone ahead of us. Because whether here on earth or there in heaven, 144,000, that is the whole of God's people, is kept safe. Not one of them is lost. Not one of them is missing. Not even those who are martyred, John sees in his vision. So with both those numbers, there's a real sense of hope. And from what you were saying also about what unfolds later in this letter, the last judgment and all these scenes that seem horrific, you're saying that there's hope beyond that as well. There's tremendous hope. I think that's a great word to use, Deb. This is a book of hope, not of fear. And sadly, it's often been turned into a book of fear, not helped by popularized novels, remember they are novels, it's not scripture, and movies based on those novels. And people end up living in fear. And the whole point of the teaching about the return of Jesus is that it is meant to lead to hope. And what John sees throughout this letter is hope. Okay, there may be judgment coming on the earth in the form of the seals and the trumpets and what they bring upon the earth, many of which we still see in our day and have seen in recent days without a doubt. But God is in control. Jesus is on the throne. There is hope. These are not random things. Yes, Babylon and the beast and, and Christians differ about what those represent. I am to think it might 
mean almost certainly means political power and religious power come together against God's people. But there is hope they will be defeated when Jesus returns. Even Satan himself in chapter 20, he is bound. He can't do his worst during this millennium period. Again, Christians have different views on whether that is a literal or symbolic period. I happen to think in a book that is so full of symbolism that that is symbolic too. But at the end of that millennium period, when Satan is released to do his worst just before the end, you know, Jesus comes and Satan is not allowed to continue his work anymore. And even though he wants to gather enemies against God to fight that last battle, you know, the battle of Armageddon that people often get fearful about. I just want to say, go and read that bit again about the battle of Armageddon, because here's the good news. The enemies of God gather together to fight against God. But here's the good news. The battle is never fought. It says fire came down from heaven and consumed all of God's enemies. Where's the battle? It does not exist. Read the text. There is hope. And at the end, Satan is going to be thrown in chapter 20 into that lake of fire. He is not going to be allowed to do his damage anymore. There's going to be a last judgment. That's a bit of a solemn point, but a very real one and one that Jesus himself taught about that at the end, God will open his books and he'll see if your name is written in the book of life. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus and lived accordingly? And if you are, then you're going to be welcomed into that glorious end with which this book ends. And if not, then sorry, but there's separation and exclusion from God forever. But for those who have trusted, for those who, like John's churches, had held on to Jesus and not denied him, but been faithful to him, he sees in chapter 21, the heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven onto the earth. Now, isn't that interesting? We're not going to spend eternity up in heaven. Heaven is going to come down to a renewed earth. And he sees this beautiful vision of a renewed earth. It's Eden brought back again. Where we started at the beginning of this journey is restored. And in chapter 22, a river of life flowing from the throne of God. And guess what's there? That tree of life that Adam had wanted to eat from. And couldn't. He could have done, but because he ate from the wrong tree, he forfeited it. And now here is the tree of life at the end of the book. This is the most exciting book of hope. But people miss it because they get bogged down in trying to work out what the tenth toenail is on the small horn, on the big horn of the left ear of the great beast. Sorry, parody, but you know what I mean. A book of great hope for then and for now. And so this climax at the end of Revelation, it's not then a, a glimpse of heaven. It's a glimpse of heaven come to earth. Now, I know that might seem a little strange, a bit striking at first, but please just go and read Revelation 21 and 22 for yourself. Heaven is real. Heaven is the place where God lives, as it were, and it's the place where we go to be with him when we die until that day when Jesus returns. 
But Paul talks in, in the book of Thessalonians of how when Jesus returns, he, he'll, he'll return with all those who've died trusting in him. Uh, and we will join with them, be caught up in the air while God is doing this renewing stuff on the earth. So very clearly in Revelation 21, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth that passed away. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. So heaven comes down to earth to gloriously renew and transform this earth that we have destroyed. And, and that's why this book's so exciting. It takes us right back to Genesis. The Garden of Eden that was lost is now restored, but it's described in a way that John could understand and his readers could understand. It's described as a beautiful city. Why a city? Because in those days, a city spoke of security. The city was where you went when you were under attack. This is a place of beauty and security with Jesus at the center. And in light of that, the book ends with a behold, I'm coming soon. Now, the soon has probably been a bit longer than we had perhaps imagined. And certainly John had imagined. But we're given encouragement to keep believing and keep pressing on in hope in light of this hope that we see in this book. So those final words what from Jesus didn't say, I might come. It's a definite, I will come. Oh, it's a definite. And we saw when we were looking at a previous letter, when we were looking in Peter, how people were saying, well, where's this promise of his coming then? You know, the years pass by. If they were saying that then, they'll even be saying it now. But it's an absolute promise. I mean, Jesus says it again and again in the Gospels that he is returning at the end of the age and that when he comes, he will renew God's world and give us bodies fit to live in that new world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, what he calls resurrection bodies, that we can enjoy God's presence forever and we can get back to how it was meant to be. So the certainty of Jesus's return is never in doubt in the New Testament. And what we are called to be and do is to be ready for that, to have made our decisions now, because there will be no time then to change our mind. There'll be no opportunity then to say, well, well, my grandma was a believer. When those books are opened, God will want to look and see, is your name written in that book of life? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? And if you have, not only does a great life with him start now, it lasts forever and is going to come to climax in this very exciting finish, not just to this book, but to the whole of the Bible story. And after 66 books, the Bible doesn't finish with a full stop. I guess it finishes with a dot, dot, dot. I think that's a really good way to sum it up because, you know, this book ends with an invitation, an invitation to come. Uh, come, whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. It's an open-ended invitation to come. This story is still open. It still invites you and me to come in and be part of the story that began right back at the beginning when we started this series and the invitation is still open today for all of us to respond to Jesus and, and to come and, you know, not just to be 
taken off to heaven one day when we die. That's a great bonus. The adventure starts now. Discipleship with Jesus starts now. This whole book really is a book, uh, the book of Revelation is a book of discipleship, how to live with Jesus in challenging times and how to make a difference and start working towards an amazing world that God is bringing. So really at the end of this series that we've been looking at, the whole story of the book of the Bible, what a great way to end. Come, the invitation is open to anyone and everyone who will come to Jesus and you too can become part of this exciting story that we've been looking at, a story that is not yet completed, but you can be part of writing. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.